Most of us have times in our teaching where we've been struck by the realization of just how much of life, of teaching, is out of our control. In today's episode, Dr. Lee Scalarup Bassett joins me to talk about how to deal with and manage when stuff gets out of control in our lives, as well as how to address those situations when it happens to our students. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm excited today to get to have a conversation with Dr. Lee Scalarip Bassett. She is the faculty instructional designer at the Center for the Enhancement of Learning and Teaching at the University of Kentucky. She has two areas of expertise, digital humanities and digital pedagogy, at least in the realm of teaching and instruction. Uh, Lee, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Hi, Bonnie. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for giving up part of your workday to contribute to this community. I wanted to say, I, I absolutely love your blogging that you do for Inside Higher Ed. And for people listening, the show notes are going to be at teachinginhighered.com slash 61. I'm going to link to her blog writing in general, and then also link to some of the posts that have resonated. But I feel like you're a kindred spirit, and I'm just so excited to have you on the show today. Oh, thank you. Before we dive into our topic for the day, I wondered if you would just spend a couple minutes talking to people who may not be as familiar with what the digital humanities are, and then as if that's not a hard enough question to attempt to define for us, if you would also tackle digital pedagogy, because I know that's new for some people who are listening. The way I like to describe digital humanities to people who really have never heard of it or don't know is it's, it's this intersection between um, technology and what technology can help us do uh, in the humanities and our humanities research that we couldn't do or uh, haven't been able to do otherwise. So uh, one of the most common ones right now is big data, distance reading, but uh, social networking and network graphs, mapping the things and visualizing the things um, that would take an entire career. Uh, previously. In history as well, it's about um, digitization, um, archives, and making also uh, research primary uh, documents more accessible and available in a scholarly and thoughtful way to larger and different audiences. Um, There's lots of different things. Mapping is another one of the big ones that takes place. Computational linguistics is sometimes considered a part of digital humanity. So it's it's a really large... um, large and interesting and interdisciplinary field that really merges, again, as I said, the technology and the humanities. And now, um, increasingly, it's starting to branch off also into or towards media studies, where we're taking a humanistic approach to studying the tools that we use, um, the digital tools that you use, interfaces, video games, um, multimodal means of communications, et cetera, et cetera. So, it's, again, there's a lot, uh, a really vast area. How about digital pedagogy? Yeah, we have unprecedented access to tools, to information, to interfaces. And the, the, the question that digital pedagogy seeks to answer or to explore is 
so what? What do we do with them? How do we do it? How do we do so in a critical, pedagogically sound way? Um, I would say that the difference, the, the term that most people typically hear or use or perhaps are more familiar with is ed tech, right? Education technology or instructional technology. And um, that's certainly part of what the interest in digital pedagogy is, but really um, to make a real craft line of division that people will probably take me to task over <laughs> is often educational technology and instructional technology um, are kind of commer- almost commercially based. I could say that, not to say that all of them are. Uh, but what digital pedagogy seeks to do is just take these tools, look at these tools and say, you know, is this the best tool? How could we use this tool? How could we bend or break? That's my big thing is making bending and breaking um, in terms of my approach to digital pedagogy. Uh, I just had to tweet that out last week. I was doing a week-long workshop on digital pedagogy. Our assignment to the students and that we ourselves did as the instructors was define digital pedagogy in 121 characters because we had to have the hashtag um, <laughs> or less. And my, my definition is making, bending, and breaking, right? What can we make? What can we do? What can we build? What can we have our students build? Um, what can we bend? How can we bend these technologies and bend these uh, tools or approaches uh, to what we want to do? And also maybe bend them uh, for a particular audience because sometimes an, an approach or technique that um, uh, an ed tech tool affords to us is something that we can easily bend for analog circumstances, right? So it's, a, it's an opportunity to bend our pedagogies and to think differently about, okay, how are we going to teach? And then breaking is really just this idea of breaking them open and saying, how do they work? Why do they work the way they do? Um, and having uh, students be, you know, going back to the making part to, so that we're not just mindlessly consuming them, but we're actually breaking them open and understanding what makes them work, because I think that that's an important part of the learning process as well. I realize that you may not remember, and a lot's happened, but do you happen to remember the hashtags? I'll put it in the show notes if you do. Yes, uh, HILT2015. Perfect. So that's, uh, that would be fun to see some of the other definitions too. So I'll, I'll, I'll link to a search where people can check out some of the other definitions people had for digital pedagogy, although I'm sure there's a lot else on that hashtag. Because now that you mentioned it, I, I saw it this past uh, time when you guys were conducting it and there was lots of great exchanges of dialogue happening on Twitter. Well, I can share some links with you as well to um, those specific assignments and the results of them. If I did a Storify and we made a Google Doc that had everything or a lot of the things in there and other stuff. So I can certainly share that uh, link with you and then it can be shared down at the bottom. Oh, fabulous. That'd be great. And the resources. Yeah. So speaking of Twitter, you are at Ready Writing on Twitter. And that's also the, the name of the blog that you write for Inside Higher Ed. Right before we get into the main topic for today, I'd just love to hear the how Ready Writing came about, where that where that name came from. Well, actually, it came from uh, how long ago now? Six years now, I guess. Uh, yeah, my son is six. So six years ago, almost exactly six years ago, we had just moved from Florida to, to Kentucky, and um, I'd given up a tenure track job so that my husband could take a better tenure track job at the time. So we got a better tenure track job. Uh, I had two kids under the age of three, um, and I was alone in a small rural uh, town with a eight-month-old at home. And so I was really struggling with what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. 
and so I actually, you know, my husband at one point asked me, he said, well, what, what would you do if you could do anything? And I said, well, I'd have an online sort of tutoring and writing uh, program where I could develop something for students so that they can be college ready um, when they start freshman writing in the fall. And so started a website and the blog was, uh, the blog and Twitter handle were supposed to be there to help promote um, the services on the website. And they just um, grew in unexpected, or maybe looking back, expected directions where the business itself didn't really take off. Um, but the blog and the Twitter persona to a certain extent um, really did. And so I just, that was who I was. It was sort of how I was branded. And so I just sort of stuck with it. And a lot of people have actually said, well, you don't even teach writing anymore because that's, that was what I was teaching. I taught a lot of freshman writing, even though my PhD is in comparative literature. I said, you know, you don't even teach writing anymore. Why don't you change your handle? Why don't you change your blog name? And I would, I'm just sort of like, well, that's, it's what it is. <laughs> it's always been what it is. <laughs> and how wonderful. So that, that's how the name came to be. How wonderful now that you get to take that passion that was originally there and amplify it so much more. Because imagine all the work that you do with faculty that you're actually still doing that. You're just doing it times the nth degree. I don't even know how to explain it. That's wonderful. It's so fun when life has unexpected twists like that. And speaking yeah. of... <laughs> well, and, and it's because of the blog and Twitter that I have a job now in faculty development because of my visibility and because of um, my willingness and ability to communicate about pedagogy in an accessible way um, and in an intelligent way. Um, put me on the radar of a lot of people who said, because I was off the tenure track for a long time after that, and um, just basically said, look, if you're interested in, um, in faculty development or getting off this sort of uh, non-tenure track hamster wheel, then we think that you'd be really good at faculty development. And so you should take your experience and take your voice and, and put that into, into this particular uh, area. And I did. And I'm really, uh, uh, really grateful for that. It's wonderful when it can happen in that arena. And then, of course, I'm sure you're also quite aware that people who are interested in publishing books and regardless of what shape that book's going to take, the publishers right now, if you're going to submit anything to a publisher, they're going to say, how many followers do you have? What kind of blogging do you do? And a lot of people have felt left behind and they talk to my husband and I and go like this in five years for them and their experience since they published their first book, the entire world changed and they were left very, very behind. So it's fun when you've already built that and it can start to take you places you didn't expect. It's fabulous. I hear in what you're saying too that, and I've read, of course, you talk about being off tenure track and, and we really still, it's it's just so surprising to me. And I know I have this bias too, even though I, I want to think that I don't, but just assuming everyone out there is tenure track, we just ignore this whole contingent faculty. I shouldn't say we, but a lot of a lot of us do ignore that the reality of how much of our workforce and how out of their control it feels and how they feel dependent on these institutions instead of having that kind of feeling of empowerment that must have been a good i guess a good transition for you to have that sense of oh i do have some power in this career direction that i'm taking there was something really fun and subversive to me, and I'm not a very subversive person. Like I'm, you know, I'm an I'm trained as an academic, and he's very well at school. So obviously, I'm very good at following rules and 
and all of that. But there was something like that was my moment of subversion was really that blog mm-hmm. um, and and talking about working off the tenure track. Because even earlier on, as I said, I had I had been in the tenure track position, but and, and sort of had seen things go on and got so disillusioned by by it all that, you know, I really, you know, even when I wasn't a contingent faculty member, those, you know, there's a lot in those early, early blog posts on my original Blogspot blog that, that you know, that that was probably the most subversive I've ever been in mm-hmm. my entire life. Yeah, you found your voice. <laughs> Tell me about a time in your life when something very out of control happened in the midst of teaching a course. Well, actually, I don't have to go that far back in time. <laughs> You know, I've got two young kids, and now they're now my kids' ages are eight and six. You know, there are often things that happen on one-off basis. So, I, you know, there was one time where I actually had to move a classroom to be next to a place, um, next to a room that had a couch in it where my daughter was sleeping because she was sick. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah. so it ended up taking a four-hour nap while I taught my classes uh, in the room next to me because I didn't I didn't have an office. Um, where she could do that, um, but those are you know you, you make you make those things work to try to figure them out. But one of the biggest challenges that I had recently uh, was the last semester I was teaching full time. So that would have been a almost two years ago now. Um, we had a really terrible winter, and we lost so much time due to snow days. Uh, but what was particularly challenging is this one class that I was teaching. Uh, it was an intro to world lit class, and I was trying to be very student-centered, and the students, you know, they chose what we were reading, and I wanted them to do alternatives to the essay, and all of this great stuff, and it was, it was moving along wonderfully until every day, it seemed, or every day I had the class, we were on two-hour delay, right, because of the weather. Mm. And it just so happened that that class was at 9, 10 in the morning, and so the rest of my classes the rest of the day met except that class. And so there was a period of time where I don't think I saw them for, I think it was like two weeks. Oh, gosh. Um, Two, two and a half weeks. And then, you know, you come back to each other for two days and then, or two classes. And then the next week, it was possible that you would um, have all of the classes canceled again. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it it became this this challenge for all of us, really, uh, to figure out, okay, well, how are we going to make this work now? And I've got to say that I didn't necessarily do the best job where I, um, despite my own uh, my own pedagogies, was still sort of um, wedded to this idea of coverage. And so rather than give up, a lot of the classes that we missed were time that I was going to be spent thinking about and brainstorming with the students and trying to help them come up with their un-essay ideas. And um, instead of giving up some of the uh, some of the things that we were reading or had to cover, which admittedly I justified it at the time, saying, "Well, the students chose it, and so I, I don't want to arbitrarily take away the students' choice." But at the same time, when they handed in their uh, assignments, their project, uh, they were, to my mind, disappointing. But it was because. I didn't give them as much guidance or as much um, space to experiment. Uh, And they themselves probably felt really overwhelmed by it too because, again, they had lost so much class time. 
And so everything by the end felt really, really rushed. Uh, so I would do it differently that, that I'd take my own advice that I've given others and I know is very difficult to take is, you know, you've got to let go sometimes on some of the coverage um, in order to really accomplish the learning goals that you want to, uh, that you want to do. How do you think about the idea of having balance in your life as a teaching professional? Uh, (laughs) I guess it changes at every age for me or or maybe my kid's age or every phase. Mm -hmm. For me, it's a double negotiation because, um, again, we're, my husband is also an academic. He just got tenure. Um, And so at a certain point, uh, we had to think about that. And so leading up to his tenure, there was perhaps less balance uh, there in terms of how we divided labor, or how we viewed um, our priorities, because, you know, being in higher education, the priority is, well, you have to get tenure, and there are certain things that you just have to do in order to get tenure. Um, and so being off the tenure track, there were certain things that I don't have to do. And so those sort of fell by the wayside, or there were certain responsibilities that maybe I took more on um, with the kids because of, um, because of that. Uh, and now that he has tenure, that's sort of switching around this year. And so, it's, again, it's a constant negotiation. Blogging was actually one of the ways that I thought to um, maintain some sort of balance, where it was something that I did for me, uh, as opposed to something that belonged to my employer or belonged to my family or belonged to anyone else or, the, like, or my students or, or whatever it is. It was like, this is something that is mine and only mine. Um, and I'm doing it for me um, and and eventually my career, but certainly it was something that I was doing for, for myself and my own sanity. And so it's really interesting that I made more work for myself to a certain degree. And a lot of people will always say that to me. Um, you made more work. I said, <laughs> yes, but it was the kind of work I wanted to be doing. That resonates um, so much with me. And I mean, my blogging, I, I blog my goal is to blog once a week. And most weeks I hit that with the exception of a few during the summer. But the podcast is where I really what you're talking about emerges because it 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 fuels me throughout the entire year, when maybe my little tiny interactions that I have with other people on my campus seem so small and can sometimes be where I, I don't necessarily always find those connections with people with the same kind of passion for bringing something new and, and different into their teaching. Boy, all you have to do is get on Twitter. All you have to do is start having conversations with people like you to bring that energy back and say, I'm not alone in all of this. That's such a wonderful thing that, that you were able to do. Yeah. Oh, and the, 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 I'm not alone in all of this was so important because I, I felt tremendously alone in it. And there's one thing that I've, keep finding over and over again, and despite some of the ugliness on social media that is clearly there, I can't quit that, and um, I can't stop advocating and recommending it to other people, because it's like, for me, um, the good far outweighs the bad. What are some of the most common ways you saw your students having their lives become out of control as you were teaching? I've taught students at R1 institutions. I've taught students at a lot of non-traditional institutions. I've taught at a primarily Hispanic-serving institution, at a historically black college, and at a rural, um, at a rural state institution, one of the poorest areas of the country. And one of the things that I have noticed, and, and 
it, it's the support group and how much support do the students have, right? How much um, can they afford to take on mentally, financially, physically, um, and, and who's there to help pick them up and, and encourage them? I had one student, and I, I'll never forget this student, uh, all the way back at the University of Alberta where I did my PhD, which is a large R, uh, R1 in, Canadian R1 institution, and she came to me and apologized for her poor performance in the class, which really wasn't that bad. Um, and and uh, she had found out that her roommate, one of her roommates, um, had stolen both her and the other roommate's identities. Mm. And gotten like driver's license and passports and taken out bank accounts and all these kinds of things on their identification. Um, and she was only coming to tell me at the end of the semester or once the grades had come in. And I was like, I really wish you had, you know, <laughs> said something. She just sort of shrugged her shoulders and said, no, well, you know, I got through it and it was a pain, but we got police uh, reports out. And my, you know, my, I don't remember, family members helped her navigate the what needed to be done and she felt pretty confident um and was just sort of informing me after the fact and saying I hope that that you don't think you know that, that you don't uh think poorly of me because of it and I was just like oh my goodness like this is huge but never occurred to her to come and talk to me um hmm. because she had this system where she was supported now in other cases um there's just very little support that these students have. There's no one to help them to navigate. Their families have never gone to college. They don't know how to navigate it, um, uh, legal systems and all that. And so when things go wrong, I mean, they go really wrong. And so we're talking about students whose families get, are incarcerated, who the students themselves are incarcerated. Um, you know, they've uh, family illnesses where um you know, they are they are then expected to become the primary breadwinner for their family or they're supporting already their own families. Um, you know, for us, a computer breaks and we're sort of like, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll get, uh, you know, some students are like, I'll just get my mom or I'll put it on my credit card. For these students, they had to borrow money to begin with to get these computers. And if that computer breaks, that's it. And, and I've worked with students whose life has just gotten in the way, you know, standing in the way, really building walls in the way of them being able to be successful students. Were there things that you mm -hmm. did to attempt to navigate that tricky balance between you, you, there's just not enough capacity in you to support the way you want to and how to decide when to reach out more than you might in other cases? How did you navigate the that I'm sure I'm sure you wanted to help. So how do you navigate? Because you can't help them all, and you can't help them as much as you probably wish you could. I got really good at one point. I asked. It was actually a developmental writing course. So the most sort of um, vulnerable students in a lot of ways. Like the studies show that if you have to do remedial or developmental classes, then you're you know much 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 more likely not to complete or persist. And so one of the assignments I had them do was to create a list of resources to research the resources that were available to them on campus, in the community, um, and online uh, for when they may have, uh, it, you know, had any kind of problem. So counseling, financial aid, um, one of the students, you know, talked and, and made sure that we knew about the, the Gay and Lesbian Support Center, and you know, that was available on campus. A lot of them uh, found charities, food banks in the community, so really just an opportunity 
um, to be able to learn the resources that are available to them that are there to try and help them. That, that, that might not be sufficient, but at the very least to be able to preliminarily help them perhaps bridge that gap. Uh, you know, letting them know where the computer labs were on campus, letting them know where uh, counseling was, all of those kinds of things. And so really, you know, I saw my role as, as listening, right, so that they felt heard because in a lot of ways they, they didn't feel heard. Um, and so making sure that they felt heard and then helping them to guide them to a place where they could be more effectively helped in that um, in the, in that sort of way. And in other cases, there wasn't even an, uh, an ask for help. It was just, they didn't expect, they didn't expect it. They were just letting me know, right? Like, you know, I've got to go to jail. Um, mm-hmm. so it's <laughs> sort of like, okay, um, good luck with that. Uh, you, you know, not to, not to be a flipper twin, but they're not asking for help. They, you know, they may or may not know what to do, but at the same time, uh, with a lot of these students, they are very proud. Um, and they have learned to be somewhat independent throughout their lives. And so they're, they're telling you to let you know, but it comes with zero expectation that you're going to be able to do anything about it, um, which is also sad. Yeah. And, and I think that there's also a, a very, uh, something very cultural about some of this, too, around what's expected of the children and what's expected of the community, Um where, you know, I have students who um, were encouraged by their families that, like, great aunt so-and-so was dying, and they were expected to be at, at the bedside with the entire family for however long it took for her to pass. That's really, you know, that's so true. And I, that, and I, that's where I am, have a downside, because I forget about that sometimes. So sometimes I'm thinking, like, let's get resilient. You know, you're going to have to move on at some point and not realizing those cultural ties with families because that's not how it was for me growing up. And I forget that. That's thank you for that reminder. And that was a wake up call for me too, because my own, when my own uh, grandfather passed away suddenly, um, not that long ago, well, a couple of years ago now, uh, you know, we were in the process. It was actually just before we moved, uh, we moved here. And, you know, it was, you know, it was, no, 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 don't worry. Granddad would understand. Of course you can't make it. You've got, you know, a six, you've got a seven month old and, <laughs> and a two year old and you're trying to move across the country. It's fine. He would totally understand. Right. Um, in, in that sort of way where there was, you know, it would have been nice had I come, but that I couldn't come. It was, it was like, no, 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 that's, it's totally understandable that you didn't come. And then, so to, to experience this different kind of, um, or I wouldn't say attitude, but but cultural practice in a lot of ways uh, that that's different. And so it's um, it was really it was really interesting. And then in other cases, I had students um, who had children that they had left behind, like they had traveled small infants that they had left behind with their mother or their grandmother or uh, someone so that they would still have the opportunity to come and go to college. Mm. Um, and so that was, you know, that was other, another eye-opening experience where it was like they'd have to miss class because, you know, um, they didn't necessarily know the proper paperwork or the proper procedures so that their kid could get medical care while they were away at college, right? Just like normal medical care, not even like urgent medical care. It's like, oh, the kid's got a bit of a cold and we've got to go to the doctor. 
well, you know, not signing the proper paperwork to be able to have grandma or great grandma do that, then that becomes something that they're constantly having to go home, even though they're trying to make that effort. But it's also, um, I could tell, mentally taxing for a lot of these students, male and female, um, who had who had left behind children um, so that they could have an opportunity for, for post-secondary education and getting that degree. Um, and, and so, again, something that's, that for me was, was uh, I don't want to say unimaginable, but just hadn't entered into my headspace, right? Where this is, this was something that they were trying to do and, and trying very hard to do, but in extraordinarily difficult circumstances. As we finish off this part of the show and move into recommendations, what's your overall advice to us as we're going throughout our semesters and dealing with the out of control and, and still trying to be great teachers? I would say that the, that one of the things is um, is the same advice I would have given myself is that sometimes it's okay to let go of some of the content, mm-hmm. um, and that and and I know that isn't easy for everyone because there's a lot of these particular introductory level courses uh, in various disciplines where content is still or coverage is still the king. Um, and we have to do all of these things and they have to be able to do them because if they can't do them, then they can't pass or they're not going to be able to get to the next level, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, um, you know, that, that to remember that the students are, you know, human beings and that you too are, are a human being and that this is um, uh, Kathy Davidson, and I guess this might be my recommendation, Kathy Davidson, and I can share this link. I've got it open if I can find it, what it's called. It, she calls um, handicapped by being under under impaired teaching with uh, equality at the core. And so Kathy Davison, she is the co-founder of Haystack, uh, H-A-S-T-A-C. She was teaching at Duke. Now she's at CUNY. Um, she leads up the Future Initiatives. Uh, she wrote Now You See It, which was um, quite formative for me in my pedagogy. And she got um, very, 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 very ill. Um, unexpectedly, and she's fine now, but it was a very long recovery process for her. And so she blogged about this idea of, as academics, we assume that everyone is as capable, as driven, as smart, as whatever, as we are. And when they're not, then, you know, well, then that's their problem, not mine, right? And this is her argument in in a nutshell. But that we need to have, uh, in order, if we want to teach with equity at, at, at core, she says, we have to keep in mind these things. We have to keep in mind that um, these students are not us, um, and they don't want to be us. <laughs> and um, <laughs> perhaps they cannot be us. Uh, but that does not mean that they are failures or that they should fail or that they are um, destined for failure in a lot of in a lot of ways. So... Um, that's, I've, I've often argued or said in other places, I don't know if I've ever said it on my blog, but I've said it in, in other, uh, in other venues or at least privately to friends that perhaps, um, the worst people to teach writing are the, are the best writers. Mm-hmm. Writing always came easily to me. Um, yeah. and so then to teach writing, I couldn't understand why people couldn't get writing because I'm just like, well, it's easy you just write and everybody's like I don't understand that and same thing with like blogging everybody's like how do you blog so much You're like I don't know I just do it <laughs> uh, and yeah. so 
really having, and it's something that I had to learn as I was teaching writing, particularly developmental writing, is just, you know, how do I help these students um, succeed at something that I have always been successful at with, with little effort? Thanks for suggesting the Kathy Davidson article. That sounds like a really good one. And I'll certainly link to that in the recommendations section. I'm sure I can probably find it. And she was actually back on the episode 28. And I know that we're getting new listeners to the show every week. So people that would be a really good one to go back and listen to if you're kind of piecemealing through the old episodes. She was a wonderful guest and had some really great things to say. So that's oh, I have it. no doubt she would have been. <laughs> yeah, teachinginhighered.com slash 28 if people want to go back and listen. I'm getting emails a lot from people saying, I just started listening, you know, where do I start? And that would be a great place to do it. So thanks. And then my yeah. rec- my recommendation actually comes from you too. And that was that you were tweeting back and forth with a woman named Andrea Rain, R-E-H-N. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly, she's at Twitter at Prof Ren, R-E-H-N, and I'll put a link to her Twitter handle in the show notes. She is collecting a list of critical digital pedagogy tools and resources, and I'll put a link to that. And I just was went to, there a couple of times. It's growing every day because people are contributing to it. And what a wonderful way, if you're back to your original talk with us about what digital pedagogy is, just to get started with that, some resources. I think that's a good one to link back to your earlier comments. Well, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. And as we close out, what's one last piece of advice for us on uh, starting, actually, because a lot of us will be starting our school year soon. What do we want to be thinking about as the new year starts? Be hopeful, be optimistic, and uh, give your students the benefit of the doubt right from the beginning. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much for being on Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks once again to Lee for being on the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. It was great to have this conversation with you, and I look forward to it continuing on Twitter and beyond. If you have never rated or reviewed the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, I'd highly encourage you to do so. It helps us help others discover the show and expand the community. And also, if you have yet to subscribe to the weekly emails, that'll get you all the show notes with links that we talk about throughout the show and combined a teaching article or productivity article. And again, just one email, try to provide high value for you. And I look forward to having continued conversations at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. If you want to subscribe, that's at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.